Um, it's been an interesting ride because back in about September, um, I sat down and tried to plan out kind of a spring, what are we going to talk about, you know, moving forward after the new year and all that stuff. And uh, I had come across a couple articles on, um, on minimalism, and I thought, oh, that'd be a good one. It's January. People are trying to, you know, do resolutions and clean things out, so that'd be a good one. I had no idea that minimalism and that word and this whole thing would become such a real uh, movement like the, the, the Marie Kondo book, I'd heard of it, but I didn't know it was so big. And then, I don't know if you know this, but Netflix released uh, a show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, which is like this new Netflix thing that your wife probably watched. And uh, it's, it's like, it, it's, it's this emotional, it's this huge, it's great. It's, I watched the first episode last night uh, at 11 o'clock and I, 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 I am throwing everything away, guys. It's all, it's all going, it's all gone. Uh, I was up watching it upstairs in our playroom and uh, the idea behind the show or her, her style is you put things into different piles, clothes and, and you know, mementos and, and stuff and garage and all that kind of stuff. And you hold it in your hands and you go, does this spark joy anymore? And if it doesn't spark joy, spark joy, that's her thing, uh, then you say thank you to this thing and then you, then you say goodbye and then you throw it away or give it to somebody or whatever. <clears throat> and so, uh, guys, I'm talking to my clothes now. Uh, this is the only outfit I currently own. <laughs> So you're going to see this uh, every week, so hopefully that's okay with you. Uh, and I was watching this upstairs in our, um, like, I don't know what you call it, living room kind of thing, but <clears throat> we call it the playroom. But we, it's the only TV in our house is in this, in this room, but it also has, like, every toy my kids have ever owned is also in there. And there's some boxes, and there's some, like, places that, that I all go, but I don't think my kids know what that means. And so they're all over the place as I'm watching this. Uh, and so I'm watching it, and then you feel inspired when you watch or read something like that, and so then you want to go do the tidying up part of it. And guys, none of my kids' toys spark joy in my life. Can you believe that? <laughs> Not a single one. Um, so it's all gone, and uh, so, that it, so here we are. I had no idea that it would become such a, a big thing, and I, I feel like it, you know there'd be some people, oh, this is like a perfect series. How did you know? And I'm like, oh, you guys... Way more luck than brains, it's because this is not. This has been a fun thing, and I know that that show just got released, and and, and I feel like it's it's super um, super relevant right now. But it was completely luck oriented. I don't want you to think. <clears throat> my my sister was in town this weekend because um, my niece uh, was having her one year old birthday party. And so she on she said on, on my drive over I listened to your podcast last week with you and Megan, uh, and I'm so surprised that you're just now hearing about Marie Kondo. And I was like, you're way more in touch. You're so much cooler than me. But um, she goes, I just condified my room. Uh, it's just you made it into a verb. She just did that. I guess you just do that kind of stuff. Um, and she said, I, uh, I you wouldn't even recognize my room anymore. She's like, I got rid of this and this and this and this. And then she said, and I bought a nightstand and I, I did this. And I was like, I think you're doing it wrong. You're buying stuff. She's like, it sparked joy for me. Okay. So then I had to buy it. <clears throat> and I said, okay, well, whatever. So, um, and, and just to prove to you that this is kind of a, a big thing, CNN this week, this week as I'm, as I'm doing like research for this and getting ready for this, um, has an article that comes out, and here's what it says, that Netflix, this is the title of the article, Netflix has people serenely, uh, parentheses, bulldozing their closets and thrift stores are riding the wave. What they did was they, gone, they went and interviewed all of these different Goodwill and, and Salvation Army and all these kind of things and talked to them about, so what kind of a response are you seeing? And they said, they said over and over again, now typically January, the first part of January is a good month for us. It tends to be one of those months, but 
<clears throat> because of this show, exponential growth. One of them said, we've received more books the week, in the first week than we usually do in a two-month period because people are just, they're saying goodbye. In fact, I have pastor friends who I've seen um, post on their Instagram, them in their garage, ping pong table in their garage, piles of books on them with their hands on them saying, thank you and goodbye. You know what I mean? Like we just, we just, we hang on to things because that's uh, what we're all about. And we know that, that this is a good thing. We know that we need to do this. This is not like, again, her book isn't uh, an overtly religious book. It has some religious undertones in terms of if you get your life right, you can, or if you get your stuff kind of figured out, your life can kind of get more right and get more, you can be more in touch with yourself. And so there's, there's definitely some of that impact in there. And we, we kind of generally know that if we allow our stuff to kind of accumulate to a certain degree and left unchecked, it can begin to control our life and almost suffocate us. And, the, and it can become more than just a, isn't it funny that we have no place to be able to set our stuff down and we haven't used our garage since 2006 because of all the stuff that's in there. It can become seriously overwhelming for a lot of people. If you've ever met somebody who lived with a genuine hoarder, it's not, it's not really a laugh matter. Um, if you talk to them, they, they would say, yeah, I have like this little tiny space and, and my husband and my wife, she just keeps everything. And it's like, I got to, there's like a little, there's like a pathway in our living room and, I, and I, I feel bad. I can't even invite people over to the house. And when the pizza guy comes, I go to the front yard and wait for him because I don't want him to come in and see what's, what's happening. Uh, um, and and it, it can actually have effects on the relationship. I don't know if I can stay married to somebody who, who lives like this. And it's such a really, but I love this person but I just don't love this piece about them. It can become significant in this way. <clears throat> but it's not just about extreme cases, although that's definitely an issue and, and, and that can be something that uh, needs attention and focus. But we tend to hold in high esteem those who live with a high level of simplicity. Those who get this right, who just kind of do this naturally, who their life and their schedule kind of reflects this idea of minimalism. They never are overwhelmed with their inbox, their email inbox. It feels like they're always on top of things and, and, and they, they um, have the, the wherewithal or the foresight to be able to get themselves in a position financially to make really smart decisions and they're the same age as you and you're like... How, how, or maybe they make more than you, but they don't like, they don't flaunt it. They live their life with simplicity and you respect that about them. Or you know that they make less than you. You know that they don't have as much as you. And yet their quality of life seems to be better than yours. You're like, I have a respect for that. I like people. I want to be around people. I want to be like people who have less than me, but seem to have this insanely good quality of life. And we, we see it and we see, we understand that the quality of life isn't defined by a quantity of things. That's not like a new, okay, Brent, I need to write that down. Could you say that one more time? We know that inherently, right? We live that out. Um, but it, I want to show how it shows up in the way that we tell stories about those whom we respect and we want to give honor to in our life. Um, one example this week that I found that I came across, which if you follow me on Twitter, you probably already um, saw this, or I guess that's assuming that you see my tweets and do something about them instead of ignore them like I do everybody else, but that's, that's another point. Um, there's a woman named Eileen Webb, and her father recently passed away, and so she took to Twitter and like a public homage sort of thing, uh, the same way that you would probably stand up at somebody's funeral and tell stories about them. This is what she did for her dad on there. So multiple different stories. And this is the one that kind of stood out to me that I really, really loved. And I'm going to read a little bit for you. The first, the first tweet is on the screen, but then I'll just read the rest of them. Uh, here's a true story about my dad. When I was little, we were on a beach in Oregon and he found a message in a bottle. The note contained an address with a plea in a young boy's handwriting to send a postcard and let him know how far the bottle had traveled. We've seen this before. It had very clearly been thrown in the ocean from the nearby crab docks. It probably traveled a whopping half a mile before washing up on the sand. 
He decided to wait until we got back to California to send the postcard. So it would seem like the bottle floated all the way south. The postcard ended by saying, I threw the bottle back in the ocean for somebody else to find. Then he shared the address with his brother who sent a similar postcard from Seattle a few weeks later. His postcard ended the same way. I threw it back in the ocean for somebody else to find. They did this for decades, sending postcards to this kid from all the places they traveled, always saying they were throwing the bottle back in the water. Mexico, Alaska, Boston, Florida, London. I found it in the Thames. Uh, Sometimes he'd recruit friends so that the handwriting didn't always match. He sent that kid postcards from Chicago, from Paris, from landlocked towns in Wisconsin and Oklahoma. (laughs) Oklahoma. He's kept the address in his wallet, though it didn't really matter because he'd memorized it long ago. Somewhere out there, a grown man from Tacoma has hundreds of postcards in my dad's scratchy handwriting. If there was a way he could do a good deed while also being slightly mischievous, he was all in. That's the kind of guy he was. Isn't that cool? And, and you read that and you realize, like, what, what is she appreciating about him? She, she, she has this chance to speak about the, you know, the influence that he had on her life. And she doesn't see, say anything about what he bought her when she was a kid. She never had, uh, he's so thankful I grew up in a home where I never had to worry about, you know, food on the table or um, going to high school, never had to worry about being the ugly kid or the kid with no clothes or this or that and the other thing or the vacations that he took me on. Had nothing to do with materialism or the home that they lived in. None of that. Her chance to be able to talk about who he was was the story of incredible simplicity. Nothing was involved in that other than the price of a postcard and a stamp. You could do this for less than $5 for like a couple of years. You know what I mean? What she, that, that's what she appreciated about him. I love the fact that he lived with this level of simplicity that was kind of like, it was, it was, anybody could do this, but he did it. And that's, that's a significant thing that we can all agree that life, we know this inherently, we live this out. Every once in a while, it's nice to have this reminder. Life is more than just stuff. And to the degree that minimalism helps us get there in like a tacit, hands-on way, that's a good thing. This isn't like a, this whole series isn't a commercial for you to go watch Tidying Up on Netflix. I'm just saying that's a good supplemental material for it. And I'm not saying you have to be a minimalist for your life, but this is, this is important stuff. I hope as a result of our time together that you are more likely than you were before to begin to do uh, some things about shedding items in storage, in your home, or whatever. My wife has been on a tear lately uh, to the point that my dogs are now hiding under the bed anytime they see her out doing things because they do not spark joy in her life. I can vouch for her on that. So is this a good thing? Yes, I think you should engage in this. Now, the historical church has always been a consistent voice um, of Uh, yes, but when it comes to things that are uh, happening in culture. Affirmation of something that's really good, but also a caution or a a comment about this. Yes, but don't don't also uh, forget that this is important to do. So I think in this similar way, this is what's taking place in this way. We we talked last week about these, a group of early Christians. After the whole Bible, like the Bible ends, that whole period is done, and then the early church is trying to form, and there's a group of of Christians in Egypt who are facing persecution uh, in, in their area. They decide, you know what, we're going to escape city life. We're going to get away from all of this industry. We're going to escape into the desert and kind of live this very, what we call ascetic sort of lifestyle. This 
purposeful, intentional denial of comfortable living. We're going to go into the desert, have none of the, the comforts and pleasures of city life, and instead focus our attention on God. They became known as the Desert Fathers. They begin to write about this stuff. And the, the things that they write about are super challenging for people like you and me with indoor plumbing and hot water on tap. It's like, oh man, what would it be like if I relied entirely and physically uh, in, in this way? And, and they knew, they knew um, in, in this sort of lifestyle that they didn't do it for show. In fact, people would come out and, and they would observe their writings or their, their writings would make their way into the hands of, of common people in the city and they'd be like, that's a really good thing. Like, I, maybe I need to do that. And they would go out to visit them and, and they would retreat further into the desert. They understood there is a temptation for minimalism, even something as good as minimalism, to turn into a sense of pride. It can happen for us too. We do some of these things. We clean out our house. The only thing we have in our living room is a fiddle plant, fiddle fig plant in the corner and it's white subway tiles everywhere. And we like post it on Instagram, hashtag minimalism. Look at me, look at what I've, and and what we've done is made this even a show for us. Look at how little I can get by on. And I'm really happy. And I I don't need you and I don't need this and I don't need stuff to be happy. And, And it can be this like curation of our own life, which can lead to a sense of pride. So all we've done is we've traded obsession over stuff or materialism with this newfangled pride, which is a a terrible spot to be in, which is probably even far worse than the original situation. So in this scenario, what I want to do is do the same thing that the church, I think, has done for centuries, is to say yes to something in culture, affirm something in culture with a little bit of a caveat. Yes, but also don't forget, I want to affirm the value of minimalism, but I also want to make you caution and understand a few things that go along with that. I want to show you an example of what this looked like um, in one specific instance uh, that Paul addresses in one of his letters to a guy that uh, was his young protege named Timothy. Paul wrote a a few letters from prison while he was imprisoned in Rome, and uh, a couple of them became known as what they called the, the pastoral epistles. Uh, meaning it wasn't, a lot of times Paul would write to a, a church, uh, and then every once in a while he would write to a person in leadership at the church and say, all right, here's my, here's my ideas for dealing and in, 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 uh, working through different scenarios. And so he had a young protege, one of his favorites, uh, it was named Timothy. He also had Titus. Those are contained in the pastoral epistles uh, for us. It's basically sound advice, a lot of life advice, by the way, a very, very self-help book. If you've ever read like Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules of Life or any sort of self-help is like, here's, here's somebody who does life better than me. What do you think? How do I do this better? You know, how do I accomplish more things in, with less time and less money? Um, so it's a little bit of life advice mixed in with specific vocational advice because he's writing as a pastor to pastors saying, all right, not everybody deals with this, but you're going to deal with understanding what it means to be in leadership in a church. And so here's, here's some little, so it's like his notebook basically of all the things that he wants to do in terms of running a church. Now, Imagine the church at this stage in history, right? Because this is probably somewhere between 50 and 70 AD. So this is, this is early on. This is like uh, Jesus is coming, he's gone, but everybody's trying to make sense. He says, go and start this, this new church that not even the gates of hell are going to prevail in this thing. And, and they're like, okay, well, what does it look like? Because it looks different than the temple and the synagogue thing that they're used to. Um, so they're trying to identify what are the processes for uh, an industry that had no real existence prior to this. Um, There was no tradition. There was no history. It looked nothing like starting a church today. When we started this church eight years ago, um, I had a lot of background to be able to uh, identify what we wanted church to be like. Now, some of it was we want to do church differently than other churches, but I didn't start, I didn't have a a meeting with a bunch of people and be like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start this thing called 
a church. You've probably never heard of it. And they'd be like, no, we've all heard of it. We were coming from other churches because we didn't like those ones. What are you doing differently? When we applied for all of our 501c3 grants through the IRS and the state, when we applied to be like, we're going to start a thing called a church, you may not have heard about it. They're like, no, we have thousands of churches. What? You're just another church rubber stamp, right? So that's how that works. Nobody, it's not an industry where there's no background, no, no operating principles, no, no, no anything like that. No, uh, imagine though, in this scenario, it was like starting a small business in a frontier market where zero industry standards are in place. And there are no SOPs, no standard operating procedures. The closest thing I could think of to try and get our minds wrapped around it, because I think this is important. I think it's important to understand what's going on, the real scenario in this. The closest thing I could think of um, in terms of today's marketplace, and, and I, I'm, I know I'm treading thin ice here, but I, I, I want, I, I'm, it's kind of like opening a pot shop two years ago. <laughs> now, you're sitting there, you're going, did he just really liken opening a church to opening a pot shop? Yes. Is that going to make the podcast? I don't know. We'll see. There might be some editing here. There might be some places I have to lose. But remember a couple of years ago when voters go, yeah, we're, let's do it. Let's, let's open this up. And it was an industry that has been around, but not really formalized. You know what I mean? And there's an awkwardness of everybody like applying for these licenses, but then how do we do it? And they're like, we don't really know. Well, what are the laws surrounding it? Well, we're kind of writing them as we go. We're not really sure. You're going to just open this shop. There's going to be some things going on. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. People are going to walk in and it's awkward. And it's like the very first part. And there's people walking in going like looking around over their shoulder. So what? I just give you money. And then you, uh, I haven't, uh, I haven't done this. this. This doesn't feel right. This feels awkward. I don't know how to do this exactly. Like, what's, what's all involved in this? I, f- it, I feel like it should be more difficult than this. It's been, it's been since high school since I've done this. But uh, so here's money. And uh, so I can just leave now? You know what I mean? It's like this. It was, it was totally weird. And it probably still is weird. I have no idea. Sorry. Anyways, and I'm not, making a, I'm not making a political statement either for or against it. That's not what the point. What I'm trying to say is, imagine that, like, awkwardness of the new stage of what are we... F- we're trying to figure this whole thing out. That's what this church is like. They're like, so we're going to like, what, meet together? We're going to talk about Jesus a little bit? Yeah, let's do that. That sounds good. What are we going to, we're going to sing some, yeah, we'll probably do some singing. We'll do some, what do you want to do? How, what do you want it to look like? It's like, it's super flimsy. It's not out there. So, so Paul is writing to Timothy as this first generational pastor saying, you don't have a lot of tradition to draw on. So me having a, a little bit more age than you and having now been a little bit more experienced in terms of seeing how this works in other different places, let me offer you some life advice in terms of how you should run this church and who you should identify as leadership in the church. That's a big deal. A lot of it in there <clears throat> is about, hey, be sure about who you put in leadership because that's a big decision in this way. It can go south real fast in this direction. Here's what it looks like. Now, I do want to caution you a little bit, right? Uh, because if you go back and read through First Timothy, there are going to be some things in there that do not match up with your 2019 current cultural context that's not going to make sense. Specifically, it's treatment of women, and a lot of times it's slavery. It's not like pro-slavery, but it talks about the existence of it and doesn't condemn it in that moment. And so you're like, oh my gosh, this is so regressive. This is so, this is the problem with the whole Bible, right? And really what that is, is is historical snobbery, which is basically saying we are so much better and we know it and I can't believe you didn't see it back then. We refuse to actually engage in the process as it existed in that time frame. What is it? Was it progressive in that time frame? Was it regressive in that time frame? We, 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 
have complete disregard for the evolution of our moral authority, and we basically take whatever we have and say, that's the problem with the Bible, and we kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater, instead of saying, all right, what does this stand in contrast to the culture? So I, I want to caution you in that way. If you go back and read through this stuff on your own, you'll see that and, and make that happen. So, all right. I think I've set the premise. We've talked about a pot shop, and we've talked about historical snobbery. Let's move on. First <laughs> Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. Paul, writing to Timothy, specific advice. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. Pretty aggressive, pretty domineering, if you will. It's very clear at this point and in other parts of, of Paul's writing that he is an Enneagram type eight, which is a challenger, which basically says it's black and white. And if you think anything different, you're the moron, not me. Okay. Uh, that's how his kind of ethos or ethos worked in this way. He was, he was very protective of it. It was like, I want to be in control of it. And he was very, very smart and, and had thought through a lot, of, a, a lot of all of these things. But this is, um, Paul feels a lot like the person uh, that you, you've worked for these people before. Maybe you're married to somebody like this. It's like, it's their way or the highway. And you just kind of like, you roll with it a little bit. Uh, and then you can kind of challenge it back to them sometimes. And they actually respect the fact that you challenge them on it sometimes. All right. He foresees, the reason he's so protective of this is because he cares so much about the people in the fledgling little church, and he doesn't want it to go south right away because it's so young and it's so often. He recognizes that there's an increasing potential risk involved in the way that we're doing church in this community at this time. There was no formal, here's how it works. There was no, people walk in, we understand there's going to be three songs, there's going to be a transition video, a guy's going to talk for a little bit, and then we're going to do this like benediction, everybody goes home and on their merry way. It was very, very different then. It was a lot more loose. In that setting, anybody who wanted to could come up if they had a word to share and come up to the front and be like, hey, and it was a much smaller group. It would be like a living room, it'd be like 10, 15, 20 people. And so therefore you knew each other. And so you'd say, Carl, you got something you want to share? Yeah, I got something. It'd be totally different. Like if that happened here at Eastlake, if I was just like, hey, I don't have anything today. Does anybody want to share anything? You would stop coming next week. You just wouldn't come back. That's how that would work. Because what kind of, I mean, you know, we can always be like, oh, we're very open to everybody else until they say opinions that we don't like. And then we're like, they're crazy. I'm out of here. So we don't like that. In this culture at this time, There was a group of people or an industry that was taking place filled with people who considered themselves and were known as what's called sophists, okay? Short for you've heard philosophy, which is like the the study of knowledge. Sophists were people who claimed to have knowledge, direct knowledge. They claimed to be wise men, experienced people who were good at orating things, They spoke well. They spoke as somebody who appeared to have knowledge. And their industry was two things. One, I can train you to have the same sort of knowledge if you will hire me. Um, And I will also sell tickets to come hear me give lectures. And uh, so you can either have me individually or you can come and be a part of my group. And what happens is then you hear me talk and I'm so much smarter than you. Um, and, that's, and that's great. And then I have books in the back and tapes and DVDs. And uh, I still have tapes just because I bought a bunch a few years back and I haven't gotten rid of them. And hopefully you have a tape player still in your car. Uh, so then you, and I'll be in the back and I'll be signing all of those things. And, and you can become smart like me and buy my program and get into my things. And I am selling you basic knowledge of human life. Now, um, Paul is recognizing in a new fledging industry where the church kind of operates like, does anybody have anything else to say? Those types of people would gravitate towards situations like that because it's a platform for them. 
because it's immediate. Oh, I get a chance to talk in front of people. Listen, you should always be cautious of people who are like, I really want to talk in front of people, right? Because if they had that sort of influence, they would already be doing that sort of thing. They don't have it. So therefore you should be careful about that situation. I'm just telling you, that's how that would work. And Paul recognizes this. And so he addresses this in this way. By the way, we have these today. Um, we, they're known as Gary V uh, and Ty Lopez, Tony Robbins, Guy Kawasaki. And if none of those names ring a bell for you, don't Google them or your Instagram feed will be filled and inundated with promoted ads and all of that kind of stuff. So he's saying, watch out. The church is fertile ground for all this kind of garbage. And it was, it was. And by the way, 2000 years later, as in somebody from like an insider perspective on the industry still very much is. Here's how he describes their activity. They have unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Here's what he's saying here. These people, they get caught up in like talking about little words and like little small little quibbles and things that don't really mean anything, but they kind of sound interesting. And they'll be willing to talk about anything, whatever topic is. And if it needs to be godliness, we can talk about godliness. Yeah. Is there money involved in that? I'll throw me out. Throw me out a, a, a topic on godliness. I'm in. I'll talk about whatever you want as long as money is involved in this. Now, uh, Paul recognizes this is a distraction for the community. This is a danger. This is a potential risk. Um, and uh, these types of people were already in conflict with the, the greater Roman community. Anyways, um, Greek philosophers had long since tried to distance themselves from these so-called sophists, right? So all of these really, really smart people are recognizing the people who are making a lot of money on it, but aren't, like, have, have kind of like manipulated the market and kind of done these things and are, are getting famous, but their message is so shallow and so weak. And so these, these genuine uh, philosophers like Plato, Socrates, all these people are trying to, they have all of these phrases that go out to try and point the people towards, be careful careful that you recognize people who claim to have knowledge but are really shallow thinkers. Don't buy their products. Don't go to their seminars. Don't sign up for their program. Be smarter than that, guys. Begins to distance himself. So here's a couple examples of these showing up. Um, you might hear many poor wretches of uh, sophists shouting and abusing each other and their disciples, as they call them, squabbling, and many writers of books reading their stupid compositions, and many poets singing their poems, and many jugglers exhibiting their marvels, and many soothsayers giving the meaning of prodigies. They are all agape for the murmur of the crowd, like men walking in the dark. They move always in the direction of the clapping and the shouting. Whatever it is, they're so obsessed with the clapping of an audience. They, they love being cheered on. They love being uh, exalted. Ooh, you're such a good Good speaker. Oh, thank you very much. I needed to hear that. I appreciate that so much. They're drawn to this. They'll do anything for this. And if it includes making money, they do it. They're so obsessed with money and, 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 and fame and, and all of the things that go along with that. Another one, one that strikes a little bit closer to home for me. One of them wrote a brilliant picture of the shallow nature of sophistry, um, talking to his disciples after one of his performances. So this is an example. It's an ironic tale, an ironic dialogue between somebody who does this professionally and then after their stage, they get off and one of their disciples is there and they begin to have this like Q&A back and forth with each other. Let me read it for you. Here's what he says. Um, it's by a Greek Stoic philosopher, uh, Epictetus? I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, but anyways. <clears throat> Sophus says, uh, well, what did you think of me today? Oh, upon my life, sir, I thought you were admirable. Well, what did you think of my best passage? Which was that? Oh, where I described pain in the nips. You should know that already. Oh, it was excessively well done. A much larger audience today, I think. Oh, yes, much larger. 500, I should guess. Oh, nonsense. It could not have been less than a thousand. 
why that is more than Dio ever had his, comp- his competition. I wonder why it was. They appreciated what I said too. Oh, beauty, sir, can move a stone. You see this? He's talking about this going, Do you, can you hear the shallowness of this? Which, by the way, after reading this, this was like incredibly convicting the other night. I will never again ask my wife what she thought of my message or how many people were at church ever again. <laughs> Because this literally plays out almost every Christmas and Easter for Brent Johnson and his wife. What did you think of my Easter message today? Oh, so brilliant. What was the best part? I, probably Jesus rising from the dead would be my best part. Good. Yeah, me too. That's what I thought too. A lot of people, huh? Yeah, yeah. More than the other churches? Probably, yeah. Cool, yeah. There were so many people today. We had to like add chairs in the back. Can you believe it? <laughs> so many rows. It was like, oh, where can I find a seat? Oh my God. Such a convicting thing. Like I'm like, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm watching this and reading this and going like, this is unfortunately how, and I'm, I'm like, I'm, I, in my role, I'm, I try and be so hypersensitive to that kind of freaking garbage in our industry and I, but even then, I, I fall prey to this thing. So I'm like, even afterwards, Kylie comes up and she goes, that was a really good message today. And I'm like, don't say that, don't say that. You're just, I'm, you're driving my ego crazy in this. So then he goes, First Timothy, he continues, verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. What Stoic philosophers had long harped on and what their claim to fame was, the highest echelon of what you could ever reach in terms of like uh, awareness or life experience or, or just like if you could get here, this would be great, was called autarkeia, which is basically an idea of self-sufficiency. I don't need any of that. I'm completely self-sufficient as an individual. I don't need your praise. I don't need this. I don't need this money. I don't need these things. Uh, it is within me if I am, am good with myself. If I self-actualize to, my, to the spot where um, it's fine to have all of the things that point to a successful life and all that stuff, but I just don't need it. And if you don't need it, that's the best spot you could possibly be in. Uh, what is the secret to happiness? Epicurus writes this. What, in, in response to the question, what is the secret to happiness? Add not to a man's possessions, but take away from his desires. Stoic philosophy 101. Learn to live with contentment. Don't add to their possessions. What can make you happy? Remove all the things that your desires. So then, then you can go through life and not having to be like, I wish I had that, I wish I had that, I wish I had that. It's not like then you get those things because once you get those things, you realize, oh, this wasn't it, but that's it. It's always the next thing, right? And, and we get this. This is super good. Like this is awesome stuff. This is real life, like good life advice. And Paul would say, that's correct. Let me affirm that contentment in life is a good thing. But he adds godliness to contentment. The Stoic philosophers would not have had that. They would have said, no, just contentment's the best that you can do. Oh, yeah, totally. Contentment is really, really good. But even contentment can lead to a sense of, I don't need anything. And you can include in that, I don't even need God. I don't even need that. Why would I need any of that? I don't need affirmation from a creator who created me and, and, and says I was created in his image and for God so loved the world and that includes me, that he sent his only son to die for me. I don't need any of that. I can just self-actualize myself into a proper level of an understanding of an existence that is meaningful and intentional and purposeful and I've got, I, I've got focus and purpose in my life because of just plain old existence. 
Paul says, listen, you're going to run into some people who are going to be out for money. And instead, to counter that, there's going to be some people who preach about contentment. And it's a really good thing. You should go there and you should look at that. But also don't forget to add godliness to that contentment. And then he goes on to define why. Uh, Verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, which is true. We know this. You've seen enough people who have done some really dumb things in life just for the sake and the purpose of money. Like outside of that moral context, they would be really great people. And then for weirdly, whatever reason, when it comes to money, they just do stupid stuff. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I mentioned this last week. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's why he defines this. Contentment is great. Contentment is, 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 is let me affirm that as a really good thing to choose from because, because people do stupid things with money because money is tied to heart. And for whatever reason, we can't, it's really hard to shake this. And so contentment is great, but he couples it with this idea of godliness. So, I know that contentment and minimalism are different, all right? Because you're like, Brent, what does this have to do with minimalism? They're, they're definitely not like totally related. The issues behind greed and the motives behind minimalism may not be brother and sister, but they are at least first cousins. They are related in some weird kind of tangible way. It's the same sort of thing. I don't need stuff to define me in terms of materialism. That's contentment versus materialism, Right? Minimalism says, I don't need that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I don't need, I, it, it still has to do with, with things, and it, but it has to do with instead of just saying, good, now I'm free from the burden of stuff. Now I'm free uh, from the burden of the stress of having to, to, to live to a certain level or drive a certain car or live in a certain neighborhood or whatever. That's not enough. The, the critique that I would have, do I love what Marie Kondo's doing? Do I love the show? Do I think you should watch that? Do I think you should tidy up your house? Yes, I think you should operate in that way. But don't miss, but also affirm, but also don't forget that there's a level of godliness. What is the point of it? Like her point of it is so you can be free of all those things, so you can become more true to your honest self. Um, You can become uh, more um, self-sufficient. She would not use that word probably, but that's the autarkia thing is is showing up again. So you can spend more time connecting with family and friends and all that kind of stuff. It's great. It's fine. It's good. But in the same way that the Desert Fathers, we didn't escape just to get out of city life. We escaped so that we could focus on our Heavenly Father. So that we could focus on where our true dependence lies and our true reliance lives. Paul affirms the value of Stoic philosophy, but adds a level of godliness to it. Yes, it's good. But here is why it's good. So yes, as your pastor, if, if, if you allow me the opportunity to speak in that, uh, in, in that way over your life. I want to affirm minimalistic living. I think there's incredible value in it. But as you go and you do this, I also want to caution, make sure that you understand a level of godliness involved in that. Well, what does that look like? Well, it comes in, I think, in two different ways. Um, two things, if you're taking notes, I'm finishing with this. A realization that it is never in the power of things to bring happiness It's never in the power of things to bring happiness, which is kind of like minimalism, but there's an added benefit to it because even in minimalism, even in minimalism, we keep the things that spark joy for us. So that sparking joy is like that, that there's, now I have fewer things that make happiness for me, but even that is cautionary. Even that I would say, I don't don't even think it's a few things. It should never be things. 
that bring happiness to you. Because you could say, well, it's not like the superfluous, all this random stuff, but like really expensive, meaningful things. No, no, no. A realization that things, items, tangible goods that decay over time can never truly bring happiness. And a concentration on that which is eternal. A realization this cannot bring me happiness. This is great. I want you to own a really nice phone. I want to be able to, for you to be able to drive here and feel like it's safe. I want you to be able to go home in a home where um, your kids are, are raised in a place where they have uh, a sense of security and they, they know they have a, a room to be able to engage, like their own room to be able to engage in their own creative minds and, and develop in that way. I want all that stuff for you. That's not, stuff's not bad. Obsession with stuff, thinking that that provides me with happiness, that's bad. So a realization that that can't bring me happiness and then a concentration on that which is eternal, which is becoming a personhood who reflects the creator God in him, who has been made in his image, who engages in relationships in meaningful ways, who responds to the creative process of how I was made and engages that vocationally into the world who, like the person who comes up to Jesus and says, what do I got to do to inherit this kind of eternal life perspective, right? You love God and you begin to love people. You prioritize people over things. That Since things don't bring me happiness and people do, I focus instead on those relationships. And first and foremost, I focus it on a sense of godliness. I respond to this by saying, I want to live minimalistically, primarily because I want to rest in you. And I want my identity to be about what you say about me, not what I create and curate my stuff to say about me. But what do you say about me is most important for my life. And we know this, we know it's relationships, which is why that story earlier about the woman who's um, writing about her dad and saying it was never about things. It was always about this relationship. And it wasn't even his relationship with her. It was how he handled relationships in the world and how he treated people. And he wanted to do something special for somebody. And we read that and we're like, oh gosh, that's so good. Yes, because we value that level of simplicity. We value the fact that it was never about the acquisition of stuff, but about something different with that. I want that for you. I want that for me. May we be the type of people who live with a realization that have stuff, do own things. That's fine. That's great. Don't let it own you. Recognize that happiness never gets you there. And then focus instead on that which is permanent, that which is eternal, that which goes beyond it. What he says about you and how you care for the people that he created in his image, his kids, and how you love them. How I love God, how I love others. A much better way. Live with minimalism, but do it right. Do it right. Let's pray. Father, our prayer as we go from here and as we maybe even attempt this week to go through our house and our garage and like materialistic stuff and just uh, we, we take this on, may we live with a, a, a conviction that this is an important thing for us, but as we do it, our motives behind it are just as important. May we do it in such a way that materialism, um, uh, the, the um, opposite of materialism isn't like a better understanding of who I am, but a greater reliance on you and who you say we are. And, and how you want us to live, especially in relation to other people. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life this week and the courage to act on it in your name.